Thank you, Marvin. I'm Dick, and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, Marvin came up to me before the talk and uh, asked me to jot some things down about myself uh, for the introduction, so that's actually my own introduction uh, that he gave, and it really was difficult for me to write down, because all I could think of when he asked for my qualifications was, let's see, I lost my driver's license, I lost, I almost lost my license to practice medicine, I was kicked out of three hospitals, uh, uh, and uh, I really had a hard time thinking of anything uh, uh, nice to say. I mean, I'm so used to thinking of all the negative things. Uh, uh, but at any rate, today's talk is, uh, is there a sex after sobriety? Uh, and uh, I don't know uh, if you realize how uh, grateful I am uh, to be coming here and talking to this group where Really, I uh, had a lot to do with my own sobriety, but not only coming here and talking to this group. So uh, yeah, I don't realize—I don't know if you realize how uh, grateful I am to be able to uh, come here and appear before the group where my own sobriety coming uh, started with, but especially to come here and talk about the three subjects I love best: myself, sex, and alcoholism. Now you, you can't really uh, beat a job like that. Uh, and uh, you might uh, wonder how uh, all this started in the first place. Well, it all started uh, around 14 years ago uh, when I discovered I was a uh, sexually dysfunctional person. And uh, what happened was uh, I went into treatment, and about two months later, uh, I woke up one morning and suddenly uh, discovered everything was well. Uh, and uh, uh, I, w I want to tell you, I was really pleased about that. Uh, uh, and when I started working in substance abuse treatment centers, uh, uh, I started practice. Uh, I started promising the recovering alcoholic practice. <laughs> These Freudian slips will get you every time. Uh, uh, I started working and uh, uh, promising these uh, recovering alcoholics that uh, in two months their sex life would uh, just get wonderful. And uh, they many of them came back to, to told me and told me that I misinformed them uh, that it really didn't. And that uh, prom prompted uh, a, a rather extensive uh, investigation, perusing the literature, going to all the sex therapy uh uh, seminars around Masters and Johnson, Demena Renshaw's, and so forth, and finding and doing some clinical research at the uh, uh, Brighton Hospital where I was at at the time, and uh, uh, and of course uh, uh, finding out what was going on. And one of the things that I discovered was uh, it was verboten, perhaps absolutely forbidden, uh, to talk about this subject at AA meetings. It just was not an acceptable thing to do. As a matter of fact, my the, the director of my hospital told me I should not. Uh, uh, talk on this subject at Brighton uh, because it was inappropriate to talk about this uh, subject with recovering people. They had enough problems as it was uh, without uh, uh, without talking about that. So, uh, so uh, that's how all this came about. And uh, what I'm going to share with you this afternoon then is those things that I learned from the cruising the literature and my own personal experiences and so forth, uh, uh, and see if it uh, is of any value to anybody. Uh, uh, out there for, with your patients or yourself or, or otherwise. Now, I'm not going to tell you what it was like and what happened and what it's like now. <laughs> <laughs> Although I will sprinkle some of that in there once in a while. Uh, uh, but uh, I am going to talk about uh, uh, many of the various things, and we'll start about with the, the, uh, the uh, 
topic for today is, is there sex after sobriety? Uh, Would you like to put the uh, first uh, overhead on? Well, is there sex after sobriety? Well, the first uh, thing to discuss in that regard is, was there sex before drinking began? Uh, Because uh, a lot of people uh, want to, uh, can, can and do return to their formal uh, sexual activity, but perhaps there wasn't normal sexual activity in the first place. And uh, so I'd like to uh, call your attention to the slide up there that divides uh, the types of sexual dysfunction into three types, primary sexual dysfunction, secondary sexual dysfunction, and situational sexual dysfunction. And primary sexual dysfunction means just that. It means that that person never was able to function normally sexually in their whole lifetime. Uh, uh, except perhaps uh, when they started drinking uh, or drugging, and then that would help it out a little bit. So these are the uh, people who, when they stopped drinking, those people at Brighton Hospital who came back and said, uh, you lied to me, my sex life didn't get better, it actually got worse, Uh, those people have primary sexual dysfunctions. The other type, of course, the secondary sexual dysfunctions, which means they were functioning fairly normally at first, uh, and then it uh, uh, and then uh, the alcohol perhaps made it better, and then eventually the alcohol and the drugs made it worse. Those are uh, secondary sexual dysfunction. And then there's the uh, situational sexual dysfunctions, uh, where the sexual dysfunction refers to one particular partner or one particular situation, but uh, giving a new partner or a new situation uh, that is only temporary, uh, and things work out pretty good. So... Going back then to primary sexual dysfunction, that always that reminds me of a story I heard uh, when I was in medical school, and I'm sure many of you heard it too, uh, about the man who broke his hand, uh, and he went to see the doctor, and the doctor put it in the cast and all that, and after uh, he had it in the cast, uh, the patient asked the doctor, uh, uh, am, am I going to be able to play the piano uh, after this is out of the cast? And uh, uh, the doctor reassured him, absolutely, you can play the piano. And he says, that's funny. He says, I never was able to play it before. And, uh, well, uh, so it is with primary sexual dysfunction. Uh, uh, if you were never were able to do it before, uh, chances are when you sober up, uh, you're not going to be able to do it uh, yet then either. Uh, uh, and what uh, this is all about, of course, primary sexual dysfunction is really the, uh, caused by our society. Our society lays a lot of guilt and shame and that on our sex lives, uh, inappropriately so. Uh, but every one of us has, to some extent, a certain amount of sexual concerns, a certain amount of indiscretions, or worries about indiscretions, a certain amount of fears over perversions, and some of us even fears over sex crimes. doesn't mean we're doing those things, but we have some thoughts about that, and we worry whether we're normal. So this anxiety, then, uh, is causing some of our problems, or causing us some problems. And alcohol and drugs relieves that anxiety, and therefore makes our sex life uh, uh a little bit better, and alcohol and drugs have always been very, very popular in our psychosocial sex lives. Uh, uh, alcohol, for instance, has always been a sign of virility uh, to the male. A guy coming into treatment, if you, as you might know, doesn't mind telling you he can drink a pint or a fifth or two-fifths of liquor a day. What he doesn't want to admit to is that he loses control. On the other hand, with the female, it's sort of the opposite of that. She sort of likes uh, that uh, loss of control. You know, to the to the male, alcohol, uh, 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 drunk is seducible. You know, if he gets somebody drunk, uh, uh, he can make out better. 
So the female knows what this male is thinking, and she is thinking, well, uh, uh, this is a good excuse. I'm supposed to protect my virginity. I'm supposed to control the sex situation, uh, and so forth. That's the way she was raised by her parents. Uh, and uh, so she's going to, uh, she can always say then, if she gets seduced, uh, that it's not my fault. He got me drunk. Now, that makes an ideal situation, if you stop to think about it. A man and a woman can sit around the same table, drinking out of the same bottle, that bottle being a sign of virility to the male and a sign of loss of control to the female. An ideal situation. It makes the prey a better predator, a prey a better uh, prey, and a predator a better predator. And it's going to be, it's always going to be uh, ideal in our social sexual lives. The problem is, uh, it quits working. Uh, and then, of course, uh, everything falls apart. And this is going to be one of the recurrent themes in today's talk. Uh, alcohol works, and it works every time. I'm quoting Vernon Johnson of Johnson Institute. Uh, that's one of the, his uh, recurrent themes. Alcohol works, and it works every time. Then, of course, we become alcoholics and drug addicts, and it stops working. And so it is with our sex, uh, our, our uh, use of alcohol in our sex lives. This stuff works, and it works every time, uh, and then it stops working. Uh, and uh, this is when we get the anxiety increases and so forth, and and uh, 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 and uh, we uh, uh, realize there's something wrong. And the reason, uh, of course, it works is because we we have all these concerns: sexual concerns, sexual indiscretions, uh, sexual perversion thoughts, uh, sexual. Uh, uh, Crime thoughts, uh, sometimes actions. Uh, uh, we have, uh, and alcohol dissolves the superego, relieves the inhibitions, reduces anxiety, uh, so it makes us function in spite of all of these concerns. Uh, now, I'll uh, uh, go as I go through this talk. I will give you examples of the different types of uh, of uh, uh, primary, secondary, and uh, situational dysfunctions. The one I've Chosen, chosen to talk about as far as primary sexual dysfunction uh, is uh, premature ejaculation. Uh, when Max was uh, showing his overhead slides, uh, it occurred to me that I didn't have a slide on, on premature ejaculation. I wished I could uh, have gotten a hold of Max and I would have had him draw one of his uh, uh, pictures here. I think it would have been uh, very illustrative, but uh, I couldn't do that. Uh, excuse me. I'm, gl I'm glad I didn't because I was told I couldn't use any pornography anyhow. Uh, uh, premature ejaculation is uh, usually a primary sexual dysfunction. I should define premature ejaculation for some of you who might uh, not know the definitions, and the definition varies depending on whether it's a female sex therapist uh, defining it or a male sex therapist defining it. Um, uh, Masters and Johnson defined it uh, as uh, a situation where the man ejaculates after inserting the penis within three strokes. Uh, uh, Helen uh, Singer-Kaplan uh, says uh, premature ejaculation is uh, a man who ejaculates beside, before satisfying his female partner 50% of the time. Uh, uh, now, uh, uh, I have seen some non-orgasmic women uh, who can't have, or even uh, some normal women who can't have orgasms uh, with uh, uh uh, intercourse, they can only have it through manipulation or oral sex or something like that. Uh, so uh, uh, I don't think that that's a, a particularly a good uh, definition for in some situations. On the other hand, uh, Masters and Johnson's uh, 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 definition isn't all that great either, 
because uh, if a lot of foreplay and oral sex goes on, uh, uh, ejaculation after three strokes, uh, strokes may not uh, cause an unsatisfactory sexual uh, relationship. So what really is involved is with is if the two people are satisfied with that uh, with the situation. If they're both satisfied, then it's fine. But anyhow, premature ejaculation is a form of primary sexual dysfunction. Usually, those people have had a problem with their sex life all of their lifetime. Okay, uh, and when I was uh, in psychiatric training, we were told uh, that the Freudian theory behind that was these had, people had uh, un unresolved edible complex, they had castration anxiety, and they avoided uh, intercourse with it because they were afraid of getting uh, castrated. Uh, uh, well, uh, that isn't uh, too common theory anymore, but there's been a lot of theories through the years, and, and Kinsey, for instance, thought uh, premature ejaculation was an adaptive mechanism. Uh, uh, they, they thought, he thought that premature ejaculators were sort of super studs. Now, that sort of surprised me, because uh, I couldn't think of a, I can't think of a, imagine a reason why premature ejaculation would be an advantage Unless it's for a 16-year-old uh, person in a in the back seat of a car with some parole, uh, parole officer walking up uh, uh, to the car or something like that, but um, uh, but that was the the theory back uh, uh, by Kinsey back in 1937. But it really took a baseball player to straighten this out. Uh, Louis DeRozier, you probably have heard of him. He uh, made that famous statement about 10 years ago, you know, nice guys finish last. Uh, uh, and uh, and that sort of put everything in perspective, you know, and ma that that allowed Masters and Johnsons to come along and, and describe the squeeze technique for treating premature ejaculation. And that, of course, is a mechanical technique uh, that's completely successful uh, uh, for treating premature ejaculation. And so it's important that uh, your patients with premature ejaculation know about that because what they have found out before was that alcohol and Valium and Librium helps that condition, okay? Uh, and uh, uh, they they realize because alcohol causes the opposite of that, causes retarded ejaculation. So if you're a premature ejaculator, needless to say, uh, uh, if you use alcohol or drugs, you're going to be a retarded ejaculator, which probably equals it out just about normal. Uh, and uh, the problem is, of course, when you stop drinking or drugging, uh, you're going to get the problem back, uh, and you want to be able to tell them what they can do about it uh, rather than go back to drinking and drugging. Uh, uh, now, um, I should uh, talk a minute about secondary uh a sexual dysfunction when it comes to premature ejaculation because uh, there is a condition, uh, a type of premature ejaculation that really is secondary sexual dysfunction uh, and that, that person becomes a premature ejaculator after he's been drinking for a period of time. Uh, and this is uh, a, uh, this of course is not unusual uh, if you, in any of the topics I'm going to discuss this afternoon because as there a, a few minutes ago, I remember I said the theme of, of this talk is that anything that alcohol and drugs works for, it starts causing. So it shouldn't be surprising to you that uh, if alcohol and drugs work to pr treat premature ejaculation, then it uh, eventually, once you become an alcoholic or a drug addict, it's going to cause premature ejaculation. And the mechanism for doing that is simply because uh, alcohol... Uh, causes hostility in, uh, with the with the sex partner. Uh, hostility, of course, both ways. And what happens then 
you have a uh, a person who uh, uh, you know they, there's criticism of women, for instance, that they withhold their sexual favors to get their way, uh, as if a man would never do such a thing. Well, men don't exactly withhold their sex uh, their sexual favors; they become premature ejaculators, and they get even that way, uh, and uh, this it becomes an act of aggression, and so. Uh, and it, it, what the male who develops premature ejaculation after he gets into alcoholism is, uh, and drug abuse is concerned, he's saying uh, at the time of, uh, of ejaculation, take that, you SOB. He, it's an act of hostility. This is a, uh, a sadomasochistic uh, type of, of secondary sexual dysfunction uh, that I'll have a little bit more to say about later. Okay, now let's, uh, uh, that what I just described as far as the text, second type of uh, of uh, premature ejaculation uh, was indeed uh, a secondary sexual dysfunction. But let's now uh, talk about the secondary sexual dysfunctions, uh, and I'll give you an example about, of that. And you can put up the uh, next uh, overhead there. Uh, secondary sexual dysfunctions uh, uh, means, and there are several type and, and types, and I will be talking about several. But I want to uh, before the hour is up. But I want to give you an example. Uh, of each type as I go along here right now. Uh, and uh, secondary uh, sexual dysfunction, uh, uh, as I stated before, simply means that your sex life was working well for a period of time, and then it stops uh, working. And, uh, you know, there, we've all known about alcohol working well. Uh, poets like Ogden Nash, uh, you know, has said, candy is dandy, but liquor is quicker. Uh, you know, we all, we all knew uh, that, that that was true. However, uh, Shakespeare, of course, 300 plus years ago, uh, knew even more about it because he said alcohol provokes the desire, but it dampens the performance. So even back 300 years ago, when uh, medicine only thought there were two types of sexual dysfunction, uh, impotence and frigidity, which, of course, we, uh, we know that's very, very limited view. Um, even back then, he knew uh, that uh, alcohol, uh, while it may work for a while, it starts causing a problem later. And this addiction phenomena uh, sort of explains that, you know. Let me show you what those arrows mean. If I have a desire uh, to have sex, that is felt like an increase in tension, an arrow pointing up. And that tension goes on, as you all know, until you have sex, then the tension goes down. Now, if I am uh, an alcoholic and I have a desire to drink, the bottom arrows, that tension, that desire to drink is felt by my body as an increase in tension. That tension goes on until I drink, and then the tension goes down. Now, the human body cannot tell the difference very, very well between a drop in tension from uh, having sex and a drop in tension from having a drink. You might say, that poor person doesn't know whether he's horny or thirsty at a time like that. <laughs> but if you're really looking at those arrows out there, you're looking at two arrows pointing up on the left-hand side. You're saying, but yeah, but what about the next morning when that sexual tension is added to the drinking tension, you must be hypersexual then. And indeed, a lot of you alcoholics out there know that is exactly right. The next morning, you are indeed hypersexual as the sexual tension is added to the drinking tension. You also find out that your spouse is so mad at you that uh, the next morning that it doesn't do you any good anyhow. But uh, nevertheless, you are aware of that. And that's true early in our drinking and drugging careers and early in our addiction. But as I will talk about a little later uh, in this talk, uh, uh, some 
physiological changes start occurring so that even if uh, uh, the uh, the uh, you do have that uh, hypersexuality the next morning, that eventually is wiped out by the physiological uh, changes. Uh, the people who continue to experience this uh, over uh, uh, a longer period of time than most alcoholics are the epsilon alcoholics or the binge alcoholics. They continue to have uh, that uh, uh, hypersexuality the next morning. Now, uh, that's uh, I, it was it was uh, interesting to hear uh, you talk about uh, uh, or laugh, I should say, when I mention horny or thirsty. Uh, it is uh, does sound sort of funny, but if you stop and think about that, what's the significance of that? Uh, what that means is you've lost the purpose and meaning of life. A lot of talk uh, today about spirituality, and spirituality is the purpose and meaning of life. And once you get to that point where you can't tell the difference between whether you're horny or thirsty, you have lost the purpose and meaning of life uh, uh, because your purpose and meaning of life has become maintaining your supply. Uh, and so you have really lost that purpose. You know, Freud said uh, the, uh, uh, the purpose of life uh, is to work and to love. And uh, what happens when you get to this point with addiction, you have lost uh, the, uh, the ability to love, the ability to have intimacy, and as that drinking goes on, uh, you will eventually have uh, lost the ability to compete and to work and so forth. Uh, so uh, those are the uh, that that is an example of of uh, secondary uh, uh, sexual dysfunctions, and uh, uh, much will be said about that uh, a little later. Okay, now well, let's talk about the uh, situational dysfunction. You can probably go back to that first one just for uh, show the uh, on the. Screen. The situational dysfunctions imply, uh, as, uh, as I said a while ago, uh, where a person uh, uh, is unable to function in certain situations or with certain people. Uh, and as you might expect with all that going on here, uh, this does not take place in a vacuum. There is uh, somebody else usually involved, <laughs> and to a large, large extent that somebody else shares in, in, uh, in all the... Uh, arguments and fights and so forth. So we have indeed a situational sexual dysfunction and if you would put up the number three pro uh, projection or overhead and this uh, a, a good example of situational sexual dysfunction uh, I f learned from Peter Martin. Peter Martin is a, a psychoanalytic marital therapist in Southfield area near Detroit and he was given a lecture one time at, at Ypsilanti State Hospital when I was a resident there and and uh, uh, I went up to him after the lecture and I said, Dr. Martin, what's the chief cause of sexual dysfunction in your practice? And he didn't bat an eye. He's unquestionably, and by the way, Peter Martin doesn't treat alcoholics, not knowingly anyhow. Uh, he, uh, he said, unquestionably, uh, the chief cause of sexual dysfunction in my practice is hostility. And I thought, my God, if the chief cause of sexual dysfunction in his practice is hostility, a man who does not treat alcoholics, imagine how important hostility is in an alcoholic marriage where alcoholic marriages are uh, the par excellence uh, of hostility and aggression. Uh, so uh, what we have here uh, is a, an affect, a feeling, an emotion of hostility. And psychiatry has told me if you suppress uh, or, uh, or repress one emotion, uh, you suppress or repress them all. Uh, you can you can have positive affects, dozens of them. You can be happy and and uh, uh, you can be angry and you can do all, you can express you can have a lot of positive feelings. But if you have an emotion that you don't like 
and you suppress it or repress it, you suppress and repress them all. Uh, so what happens if you have the feeling of hostility? You lose the ability to have love and intimacy and, and sex and all that. And uh, uh, so this, I think, is an extremely important cause of, of a situational dysfunction. Well, Peter Martin uh, was there. I asked him, I, I, I praised him for his insights, and I said, uh, that's really great. Uh, what do you do about that? Well, he said, uh, the treatment for hostility or the situational sexual dysfunction uh, is uh, quite simple. Not easy, but quite simple. He said, what you do is form a perfect marriage. Uh, and uh, up on the board, he, I have up on the screen, I have what he described as a perfect marriage. A perfect marriage is two people who are equally independent, mutually dependent, with reciprocal obligations. And I says, my God, no wonder uh, AA and Elanon work so well uh, for uh, sexual dysfunction, especially in, in uh, situational uh, uh, dysfunctions, because uh, that's exactly what AA is. Uh, and he, by the way, uh, uh, Peter Martin said, uh, in a perfect marriage, he describes as two trees standing side by side, uh, overlapping each other, forming an arch, and those two trees uh, being more protection from that couple in that marriage than either tree would uh, standing alone. Uh, and that's where I got the idea for uh, that uh, uh, AA and Al-Anon uh, was so successful because that's exactly what AA and Elanon is. It's two people standing side by side, each able to stand on their own two feet, rolling tall and straight, both overlapping each other, making per perfect protection for those people in that marriage, more protection than either would uh, standing alone. Uh, so that's uh, a certainly uh, one of the ways, uh, if the time permits, we'll talk a little bit about the treatment of, uh, of sexual dysfunction uh, in alcoholic uh, uh in alcoholics and alcoholic marriages, but certainly that is one of the, the ways. Uh, um, one of the things that, uh, uh, talking about uh, doctors and, uh, and uh, pianists, uh, remember I told you the joke a while ago, uh, that brings to mind another story about Vladimir Horowitz, uh, the, the uh, great maestro. Uh, he was walking down the uh, uh, streets in New York one day and uh, Somebody stopped him and said uh, to him, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? And he said, practice. Uh, and uh, uh, basically, uh, for people with a sexual dysfunction problem uh, uh, or a marital problem, uh, that's the advice. Uh, what you need, you, you, things sometimes get better uh, just by abstaining from alcohol and drugs. But on the other hand, if you've got primary sexual dysfunctions or situational sexual dysfunctions, uh, sometimes you have to work on them in, in practice. Those two trees also represent another philosophy or, uh, uh, or movement that's very popular right now that I think is worthwhile uh, talking about, and that's the, uh, the also represent the, uh, the women's liberation movement or feminist movement. And I want you to know that for a sexually dysfunctional male, the women's lib movement is the best thing that has happened uh, to them uh, because this gives them a way to overcome the sexual dysfunction uh, due to fear of performance, which I'll talk about a, a little while, uh, in, in a little while. Queen Victoria, you know, uh, uh, used to admonish her daughters on their wedding nights that what they should do is close their eyes and think of England. <laughs> in other words, in other words, back then, uh, sex was something, uh, uh, that uh, women did not enjoy. Uh, they were to endure, uh, but not enjoy. 
And as you know, about 30, 40 years ago, the sexual revolution came along and sex became something the male did to the female. Uh, and, uh, or, or, excuse me, during the Victorian times, sex was something the male did to the female. And she was to endure but not enjoy. Then the sexual revolution came along and sex became something the male did for the female. Uh, and, of course, we took our job very seriously. At least uh, I did. And, and I got all the... Uh, I got all the uh, sex manuals and uh, and studied them, and it w- I had it down to a fine science. It was simply a matter of a peck in the cheek, a tweak of the breast, a dive to the clitoris, and stick with it till something happened. <laughs> the male's thinking uh, he's uh, God's gift to women. Uh, the female's thinking, I wish God had picked this joker up and taken him back. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's thinking he's a real Don Juan in bed. And she's thinking he's more like a gorilla playing on a violin. Uh, uh, but now, with women's liberation, we have a new method. Uh, and the new method is uh, uh, sex is no longer something we do to the female, no longer something we do for the female, but sex is now something we do with each other. Uh, again, the two trees. Each taking responsibility of our, for our own sexuality. Uh, and I have a little story to tell you about that, too. And you remember this story, and you'll remember how to overcome any uh, sexual dysfunction uh, due to any fear of performance uh, uh, or anxiety and so forth. And the story is about this couple. Uh, we'll don't want to say they met in the bar for this group. Uh, don't want to insult any of the clergy and say they met in church. Uh, don't want to say, certainly don't want to say they met at an AA meeting. Uh, so I'll say they met them in a library. They met each other in a library. Uh, and... Uh, they wanted to get to know each other better, so they go across the street to the motel. <laughs> and she's take, she takes off all his clothes, and he takes off all her clothes. And the guy isn't endowed too well in the sex department. And she looks at him very disappointed, and she says, My, she says, who do you expect to satisfy with that? He looked up at her, smiling and completely undaunted by her remark, and said, me. <laughs> the de- that's a debt we owe to the women's liberation uh, movement, uh, that indeed uh, we do not take responsibilities for somebody else's sexuality, we take responsibility for ours. Now, there's nothing wrong with taking responsibilities for somebody else's sexuality if and when you want to, and if and when you're capable of but the point is, you, we all have to remember that our primary responsibility uh, is uh, to ourselves. You want to put up the next, the, the pair now. Now, I've just given you examples of primary, secondary, uh, and situational dysfunction. Uh, as you may have guessed, or as I might have indicated as I was talking about these, um, they very rarely occur uh, uh, in... Uh, uh, Alone. I mean, usually they overlap. You'll have a primary sexual dysfunction, which will uh, can be superimposed uh, from the damages of alcohol, which can be uh, superimposed on an, an interpersonal relationship problem. So rarely uh, do they uh, occur alone. So you may have somebody walk into your office who has a little bit of primary, a little bit of secondary, and a little bit of a situational dysfunction. Uh, each one of those has, in addition, three causes itself. Uh, uh, it, it may have an organic cause, a psychological cause, an experiential cause. So you really have nine types of sexual dysfunction, and very rarely do any of those occur in pure form. So, uh, and only one of them 
the primary organic, which I'll tell you about in a minute, is not related to alcoholism. So there are uh, eight types of, of sexual dysfunction. The, the physiological, the primary organic, uh, is actually very limited. That's uh, 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 due to Turner syndrome or Kleinfelter syndrome, uh, an XXY chromosome or a, 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 a X chromosome. Uh, so they look like uh, the Turner syndrome looks like a female, but it's actually a male, and the Kleinfelter looks like a male, but he's actually a female. There's nothing to do with alcoholism, and I'll drop it at that uh, point. Uh, the psychological example under primary sexual dysfunction uh, uh, consists of all the things that during that happened to somebody during their developmental years before the age of seven uh, that causes them sexual concerns, sexual indiscretions, sexual perversions, or um, or sexual uh, sexual crimes, or anxiety over that. That doesn't mean they're acting out on all those uh, anxiety things, but they have fears about them. Now, the, all of these are the result of the way our society uh, uh, raises us. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, uh, me, uh, females in this society are raised uh, to, to not accept their sexuality. Females are very good at intimacy, very poor at performance. Males are very good at performance and very poor at intimacy. Uh, Frequently, this is described as the lovesick wife, cold sick husband marriages. I mean, uh, this is a very, very common problem uh, in uh, our society. And the reason for this, of course, is because of the way uh, we're raised. Females are raised not to accept their sexuality. If they touch their genitalia accidentally or otherwise when they're uh, two, three, four, five years old, they get their hands slapped, naughty, you know, and, and uh, during... Uh, uh, the biblical days, uh, the females couldn't go to, uh, to, uh, the synagogue, uh, on their, uh, during their menstrual periods. They were considered unclean. So everything about, uh, sex and, and, uh, periods and that was very, very, uh, bad and naughty. And the reason that this is so is, is, uh, they wanted to make sure the girls were, uh, virgins when they got married and so forth. And you know all that story, and I won't go into that. With the males, however, uh, and that's why they don't accept their sexuality. On the other hand, they are taught to be very emotional. It's, it's okay for a girl to cry, and it's okay for a girl to hug another girl or a guy or a father. I mean, all those things are very nice. Guys aren't supposed to cry. Guys aren't supposed to uh, to uh, uh, hug other people, other guys. Uh, but it's certainly okay uh, for them uh, to be proud of their sexuality. And they were raised that way too, you know. And, and way back when they were two, three years old, uh, they would uh, stand in front of the toilet to urinate and and if they everybody clapped their hands if they succeeded in hitting the toilet and there's a time of celebration and man, they, they, they became very proud of their sexuality and they knew all about it at a very early age. And, and nature cooperated with parents at times like this, if you stop and think about it, because the female genitalia as, just like the male genitalia is uh, divided into three parts, a sensual part, a reproductive part, and an excretory part. And the female, there's divided into three different areas, all hidden away inside of the body. And if the mothers have any other way about it, they'll be married before they ever discover that it's there. Uh, uh, with guys, uh, it not so. They all end at the same point. The, uh, the head of the penis, uh, the, uh, the sensual part, the excretory part, and the reproductive part all end at the very same point, and he becomes very uh, uh, familiar with it and very comfortable with it uh, uh, right from the very beginning. And Nancy Friday wrote a book, My Mother, Myself, that is a must-reading for everybody as far as I'm concerned, uh, because she goes into all this. But she points out in her book 
the difference between males and females in this regard, she said, for instance, uh, male, females are ashamed of their uh, menstrual periods. Um, if a male had a menstrual period, he'd find some way to brag about it. And I can see it all now. At some smoker some night, some guy started having a period, he would stand up and he would uh, go, wow, I'm having a spontaneous emission. And that would start a big discussion. Uh, you only used two pads last month. I used four pads. You had, you only had one period last month. I had four periods last month. And all this bragging would be going on uh, as uh, uh, as uh, men uh, uh, became uh, tried to make their sexuality uh, comfortable like they are uh, with it. And uh, this ends up in uh, a, a primary sexual dysfunction of a psychological nature. The, what example, the examples I'm talking about is, for instance, uh, the, the, what's called the uh, Cinderella complex for the female uh, uh, is a good example of that because a, a female, of course, is not supposed to enjoy sex. She's supposed to postpone sex, turn, sex, turn herself off until she gets married, uh, and then she's supposed to get married, uh, and she is supposed to live happily ever after. You know, she know how the females are raised. Sex is dirty. Save it for somebody you love, uh, and um, so uh, so they uh, they try to do that, and and uh, when they get married, they're sort of promised that uh, uh, they will get married and they will live happily ever after. Uh, and of course, this is uh, is a, a bad situation for the female uh, because she gets married and she finds out she does not live happily ever after. Uh, the result is uh, she blames him. Uh, uh, so she, what can you do if you have a problem? Uh, uh, in your your sex life and your marriage, and it's unhappy, and you were raised to believe that some guy is going to come uh, kiss you on the cheek, and she will live, ha- you will live happily ever after. That's sometimes called uh, the someday my prince will come, uh, and so will I. Uh, uh, I And when she becomes, uh, if she isn't happy with her sex life, and this frequently happens when she's an alcoholic, of course, uh, not because of the guy, uh, but because of the alcohol, she can do one of two things. Uh, she can uh, become very, very depressed, which 90% do, and crawl into the woodwork, uh, uh, or she can go out and look for another prince. That's called a barfly. Uh, uh, neither method is uh, is satisfactory, however, uh, because it isn't. The problem is not with the prince. The problem is with the booze. Uh, and if she doesn't uh, uh, see that, uh, then of course uh, she won't come into treatment and so forth. That's one advantage when the guy becomes impotent as a result of drinking. Uh, the way he's been raised, he's raised to see the problem is with him. Uh, if he can't get it up, at least he he knows it's the wrong. It's, the thing is the uh, the problem is with him. If she becomes non-orgasmic as a result of her drinking, she's apt to see uh, the problem uh, as him. Okay, that was the story with the females. Let me uh, give you an example of the situation uh, with males. I mean, just because they accept their sexuality, that doesn't mean everything works out all right for them. Far from it, uh, they have a problem with their emotionality, and they can accept their sexuality, but not their emotionality. And by the result of that, they become very competitive and very jealous for instance, um, you know, uh, Freud talked about penis envy, uh, and penis envy uh, usually refers to females. Uh, uh, actually, uh, uh, Karen Horney, uh, the 
female psychiatrist uh, at, at Freudian, uh, right after Freudian era, she said that if uh, Freud had been a female, we would not have, he would not have talked about uh, penis envy. They would have talked about the dimple-pimple uh, complex. Uh, uh, the pimple uh, would have been the defect, and the dimple would have been uh, the asset. Uh, but at any rate, we do have with us the penis envy, and I must say that I have never seen penis envy in a female, but I've seen lots of it in males. Um, uh, if you go to the YMCA, you always see looking guys looking out of the corners of their eyes at the, how the other guys are, are hung, uh, with the uh, the concept being they're checking out to see if uh, it's true that all men are created equal or not. Uh, but uh, uh, the big problem with males, of course, uh, is uh, that they have a hard time accept, uh, accepting other males. They're very competitive and jealous, uh, and they're very, they become very homophobic. They're afraid of the possibility uh, that they may be uh, homosexuals. And nothing, you see, if they show any love to another male like a female can, uh, that must mean uh, you're gay or something like that. And so you become... Uh, they be, they become homophobic and uh, they frequently get homosexual panic uh, and of course you can uh, you can sublimate this uh, uh, this uh, fear that you're a homosexual by uh, taking part in sports and and uh, or in business and so forth so you sublimate all this you know males uh, in our society. Uh, there, there's a lot of ridicule about masturbation, uh, and masturbation, for some strange reason, is associated with homosexuality. That's hard to understand because uh, 90% of all males masturbate, and the other 10% lie about it. But for uh, some reason, uh, they have this uh, this fear of being homosexual, so they can sublimate it uh, by uh, 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 putting all their attraction to the opposite sex in sports and. and uh, a business and so forth, and and uh, a, you know when I came into uh, medical school, uh, these all the psychiatrists back at that time uh, defined alcoholism uh, as a condition caused by uh, latent or overt homosexuality. Um, so what happens is uh, when you when they start drinking and become alcoholics, they discover three things. Number one, they discover they spend a lot of time with the same sex in bars. Number two, they become impotent, at, uh, and number three. Uh, um, uh, they become hostile towards the opposite sex. So they sort of look like uh, homosexuals. Then, of course, alcohol reduces the uh, superego, dissolves the superego, reduces inhibition. So there may be a lot of homosexual activity in the, uh, during this period of time. Uh, so indeed, uh, uh, homosexual panic uh, is a, a real uh, uh, problem. And if you and this can uh, further cause, uh, uh, just like the female doesn't work on her problems because she thinks it's his fault, the male uh, can avoid working on his problem because uh, he thinks it's uh, uh, that he uh, has been homosexual all of his all of his life. Okay, the experiential is otherwise called the learned type. Uh, this occurs after um, this occurs uh, after the age of seven. All the ones I talked about uh, a minute ago occur before the age of seven, so they are unconscious. You want to understand? Yeah, there isn't that you sit down and think and know these things. They're all unconscious. There's one called. Uh, uh, state-dependent learning that occurs after the age of seven, uh, but it is uh, a, a learned thing. And this one comes from David Smith of Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic. Most of you who know know him know him very well. And he first described this uh, with uh, um, very, very young, almost pre-adolescent or early adolescent uh, um, amphetamine abusers. Uh, and it goes something like this. He discovered at Haight-Ashbury, we had a, we had a lot of young uh, uh, addicts that they... Uh, 
uh, uh, were in treatment for a long period of time, and he found that they were going down to the local pornographic movie theater uh, and uh, spending six and eight hours down there watching all this pornographic uh, uh, material, uh, masturbating there in that six and eight hours. And he thought, wow, these guys or gals uh, are really hypersexual. Not until he got to know them a little better did he realize they were not hypersexual, they were practically asexual uh, because uh, what they had was uh, a condition called state-dependent learning. They had started using drugs before the age of puberty. They had learned all their sexual erotica in a drug state of mind, and when they sobered up, straightened up, they had no sexual erotica left, uh, so uh, they were practically asexual. Now, these... Uh, this situation is not too ominous because they are still young and they can go out and uh, learn their sexual erotica, uh, a new sexual erotica. But it's important to understand uh, that uh, uh, this can occur. And, of course, I've known it to occur in, in uh, uh, older people, too. It's usually less severe in older people than it is in the, the kids. Okay, then we have under secondary sexual dysfunction, uh, these, uh, these same uh, things. You can put up slide number six, if you would. I... I think we skipped one. Uh, we just skipped five. I talked about it without putting it up there. Secondary sexual dysfunction again occurs uh, in the organic, uh, um, psychological, and, and the learned part. And uh, the organic part is simply means the damage caused to the brain, like depression, to the uh, vascular uh, uh, system, like blood clots, uh, uh, to the endocrine system, like hormones. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, hormone depletion, and uh, uh, and uh, so what, what you have is uh, actual damage caused by alcohol and drugs to the body, causing secondary sexual dysfunction. I won't take a lot of time with this because it's in the literature. However, there's a, I should mention how it, uh, the reason for it. And the testicles also have alcohol dehydrogenase, and uh, the alcohol has an effect on luteinizing hormone, and those. Uh, 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 damage, the, there's damage to the testosterone, uh, so there's a lo loss of, uh, uh, sexual desire and ability. And I, uh, and, and as I say, I'll refer you to the literature for that. I just want to talk a, a second about recovery because it's important. This is the one that I think I was suffering from, uh, because, uh, this is the one that gets automatically better by itself by abstinence in about two months period of time. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, Kolodny of Masters and Johnson described this, and he said the desire to have sex comes back in five days uh, after your last drink. Uh, uh, the ability to have sex doesn't come back until two months after your last drink. Now, this is the reason I think a lot of treatment centers has one, have one-month programs instead of two-month programs, uh, uh, because if we had two-month programs, uh, we would have an awful lot more trouble uh, than we have uh, right now. And the other... Th the other type of sexual dysfunction is the one caused by liver. And, of course, there's a couple of theories on that. One is that the estrogen scavenger cells of the liver in the males doesn't destroy the estrogen. The other is the liver damage uh, doesn't... Uh, 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 um, it doesn't, uh, 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 the liver can't metabolize the female, the female hormone. Whichever the case may be, there's no question that, uh, alcoholics with, uh, male alcoholics with a cirrhosis of the liver, uh, uh, develop, uh, Im uh, impotence, uh, uh, atrophy of the testicles, uh, and large breasts, just like a female. Uh, and I like to say about these poor, unfortunate individuals, as far as wine, women, and song is concerned, they can sing a little bit, uh, uh, and that will be up an octave or two. Okay, uh, the next one I want to talk about is the psychological uh, uh, types, and the psychological types uh, 
Uh, well, a good example is the fear of performance. And if you want to put up the next uh, overhead, fear of performance uh, uh, is described uh, as varying all the way from uh, from uh, fear to panic. Fear is defined as the first time you can't do it the second time. Panic is design, defined as the second time you can't do it the first time. Uh, uh, but uh, that's called the fight or flight mechanism, you know. And if you're walking down a dark alley in the middle of the nighttime all by yourself and somebody uh, jump out, jumps out at you and says, boo, uh, uh, like this cat, you're going to get scared and everything is going to be standing up except the things necessary to have sex. Uh, uh, because what happens with the fight and flight mechanism is the adrenal gland puts out adrenaline. That sends uh, uh, blood to all the major organs of the body uh, uh, so you can fight back or run like hell. Uh, uh, and um, uh, so that's called the fight or flight mechanism it's a, it, because it sends the blood to the, br- the, the brain, lungs, and, and heart so you can fight back and run like hell. If you don't believe that, imagine yourself walking down the dark alley in the middle of nighttime sometime and somebody jump out at you and saying, boo, are you going to stop and have sex at a time like that? I can assure you it's the furthest thing from your mind and ability, uh, and that is the fear of performance. Now, fear of performance can be from external things like somebody saying, boo, but it can be from internal fears uh, where you have, you have fear of inadequacy. If you're an alcoholic, haven't been able to perform uh, and so forth, this can be an inadequacy fear. Uh, the same adrenaline is released and the same uh, problems occur. The third one on that, uh, you can go back to the previous slide uh, again, if you would, uh, number seven. Third one uh, is the miss, uh, the learned thing, and the miss can cause a problem. There are many, many uh, miss, but if you, uh, these can cause psychological problems. And uh, an example uh, of a myth that can cause problems in the male, for instance, is the f- that females don't enjoy having sex. Females are not as sexual as males. Uh, females are supposed to play the passive role. Females are supposed to be receptive, etc. And if, of course, they run across a female who does not sit in that, fit into that stereotype, uh, this can, uh, of course, cause uh, a lot of psychological problems. Another one that's very common is, uh, is the, uh, the idea that the myth that elderly people don't need, can't have, don't enjoy sex. Now, this is, uh, of course, one of the, the uh, myths that causes uh, one, of, one of the most problems. An example, uh, and I got a little uh, story to tell you uh, by Alex Comfort uh, to describe this. And Alex Comfort said uh, elderly people do indeed enjoy sex. Uh, in fact, uh, the only time elderly people stop having sex is for the same three reasons they stop riding bicycles. Number one, because they think it looks silly. Number two, because they are in poor physical health. Or number three, because they don't have a bicycle. Uh, uh, okay, let's uh, go on to the um, slide number eight. Slide number eight is, uh, I'm going to, I'm, I'm sort of running out of time for uh, telling you some of the things I wanted to tell you about, but slide number eight is not in the literature, uh, and yet it's very important, so I'm going to take time to uh, tell, tell you about this. And this is the Coolidge phenomenon. The Coolidge phenomenon has to do with anosognosia. Anosognosia is right brain damage. If you have a stroke there, uh, you will deny that you have paralysis in your left arm. Well, we alcoholics and drug addicts have right brain damage, and that's where the pathological denial comes. It's also the area where we fantasize from, and we alcoholics lose the ability to fantasize. And so uh, in order to overcome some of our sexual hang-ups, we have to uh, have the ability to fantasize and turn ourselves on. And if we don't, if we lose that ability, uh, we indeed uh, uh, have problems. And and as far as situational uh, dysfunction, 
uh, in the organic way, uh, we are programmed uh, to behave differently as men and women. Males are programmed to have multiple sex partners. The females out there won't enjoy hearing this, but this this story has some redeeming social qualities to it, so pay, bear with me for a minute. Uh, males are programmed to have multiple sex partners because they got millions of sperm, and the more they can spread those around, the more offsprings they'll have, and so they're programmed uh, to have a lot of sex partners. Females need the, the, uh, the best-looking, the most handsome, the most intelligent, the most powerful... Uh, male around. They, they can't all get those kind. My wife didn't get one. She fantasizes Robert Redford all the time. So, uh, fortunately, she is an alcoholic. So she is not an alcoholic, so she can still fantasize, and it helps me a lot. Uh, uh, <laughs> so, the Coolidge phenomenon goes like this. Uh, if I... Uh, uh, President Coolidge uh, and his wife visited a chicken farm one day, and uh, the uh, uh, the uh, President, Mrs. Coolidge, was watching the roosters have sex with the chicken, chickens, and, and uh, she says to President Coolidge, uh, does the roosters have sex just once a day? And President, uh, the chicken farmer says, oh, heavens no, the uh, rooster has sex 15, 20 times a day. She says, will you tell President Coolidge that? So uh, he goes, a chicken farmer goes over to President Coolidge and says, your wife wants you to know uh, that uh, the chicken, the roosters have sex 15, 20 times a day. And President Coolidge says, with the same chicken? <laughs> and the chicken farmer says, oh, heavens no, with 15, 20 different chickens. He says, well, go tell Mrs. Coolidge that. <laughs> So this, uh, uh, we, we, we can get by with this, uh, because in, and with monogamous marriages, they, like, uh, uh, William James says, hickamous, hokamous, man is polygamous, hokamous, hickamous, woman is monogamous. We can get by in this because we have the ability to fantasize, and of course we can fantasize uh, whatever we plan, we want to, and so we can have successful monogamous marriages. But if we lose the, uh, the, uh, uh, if we lose the ability to fantasize, then, of course, uh, we are stuck with the way we were programmed biologically, uh, and uh, this can cause uh, problems. Okay, I've already talked about the, psychologic, the, uh, uh, the psychological uh, situational dysfunctions, meaning hostility. Uh, and last but not least, uh, <clears throat> let me talk about the learned uh, uh, situational ones. Uh, several of those are involved where, for instance, uh, there could be individual uh, learned uh, causes of situational dysfunction. I'm thinking of a, of a man having an affair with a woman uh, in her home, uh, and suddenly the, she, on the back stairways uh, he hears the footsteps of another man uh, climbing the stairs. Uh, this can cause an instant uh, sexual dysfunction problem of a learned uh, nature and is, of course, short-lived. Uh, a more common uh, one that we have uh, is the cultural ones, uh, and uh, there are such things as... Uh, uh, pregnancy and, and AIDS, and somebody mentioned today, uh, uh, it's, it's the fatal, uh, uh, what, how do you mention it, fatal as well as fetal uh, problem, that uh, uh, you can be afraid of pregnancy, but AIDS is, uh, is a, even a greater threat uh, since there's uh, uh, a fear of death. And of course, in, the other, in previous years, and to some extent now, gonorrhea and, uh, and uh, uh, syphilis and so forth. So these... Uh, uh, learned fears uh, can cause situational sexual dysfunctions. Uh, but the uh, one I want to mention last before closing uh, is can be even imagined sexual dysfunctions. And, uh, and a few years ago, I read in the newspaper uh, where uh, uh, Bella Abzug uh, 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 made the statement that uh, 
males would never understand female sexuality until the males had been sexually penetrated. Well, I can't, it's hard for me to even uh, grasp what she meant at that situation, but it certainly makes you afraid to turn your back on anybody in situations like that. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, if you uh, happen to be in uh, a, a situation where you were with somebody who uh, you knew had philosophies of that nature, uh, then that learned uh, uh, type of thing that would could certainly uh, uh, turn you up. Okay, I'm at the end of... Uh, uh, my talk, and I want you to know that I've appreciated being with you this afternoon. I certainly have uh, been honored to be asked to uh, uh, speak uh, uh, with this group. Thank you very much.